Hey, welcome to the Mind Your Health podcast. I'm so glad you can join us. I'm your host, Dr. Mina Merholm. I'm a board-certified psychiatrist and an assistant professor of clinical psychiatry in Columbia University. I'll be speaking with some of the leading experts in mental health around the world to learn how we can incorporate principles of lifestyle changes, our faith, as well as some of the leading innovations in mental health to learn how we can live happier and more fulfilled lives. And hopefully we'll have some fun along the way. I hope this inspires you and encourages you to mind your health. Hi, welcome. I'm Mina Merholm, board certified psychiatrist, and I'm so excited to be joined by an expert today, someone who actually knows things about adolescent psychiatry, my good friend, Dr. Joshua Thomas, all the way from Houston, Texas, board certified child and adolescent psychiatrist with many years of experience treating the young kiddos and their families. Welcome, Dr. Thomas. Thank you so much, Dr. Merholm. It's a pleasure to be here. Good to see you again. It's been so long. How have you been? Good, good, man. I'm happy to see you. I love your office setup. You got the whole thing going there, the couches and the total shrink vibe. It's going well. I'm just saying, I wish I had more degrees. I'm just going to show off my degrees here. There it is. There it is for all those who uh, now we match. need it in the background just to make sure. I'm this is also like I could do, just compare degrees and just kind of see. Right, right. I, I, I saw six over there. I'm two or six and I raised I 12. <laughs> Well, man, I know you've got, you know, all the credentials needed for our discussion. Thank you for taking the time to chat. And, you know, I just want to jump right into it for you. I know there's been a lot of times where people have asked me things about young kiddo, you know, behavioral health questions. And I'm like, man, I wish I had a great friend who was an expert in this so I can throw all these questions at him and then get his perspective. And some things that people have asked me kind of here and there, as we're sort of starting to finally come out and like breathe a little bit, you know, and see like sunlight and I get some vitamin D. Have some post-COVID life. People are wondering, like, has this past year destroyed my kid's life as far as you know, a kid who's never seen school and they've just been traumatized by stupid Zoom every day? It, you know, is is there an actual uptick of mental health issues? Is there something? Are we just noticing it more? Like, what do you think has been a balanced way to understand COVID and mental health for young kids? The question is one that I think headlines or sells the news information things like that i think what matters most to people is how is their child doing are their children doing through this whole process right so the larger question is there a rise in mental health concerns for children um you know that one we're gonna have to wait and you know really look at the data see what they what pans out now there have been you know studies looking into this mostly just kind of asking questions are you concerned about your child's mental health and polling and so yeah we do see a rise in that we are seeing rises in depression symptoms, anxiety symptoms in children. We do think it's a slightly accelerated rate because it's also important to bear in mind that even prior to the pandemic, we were seeing these kind of rises in reports of anxiety and depression. So I couldn't tell you for sure yet, right? But what I can say is that anecdotally, at least in my practice and some of my colleagues when we talk, we are seeing, wow, yeah, we're getting a lot more patients, mm-hmm. um, whether that be psychiatrists, uh, therapists, uh, pediatricians referring. Uh, we do see a lot more patients. I would probably, yes, I'd probably say about 10, 15% increase in the number of volume. That mm-hmm. we're I mean, in fact, I had to hire a new employee just to kind of handle all of the phone calls and conversations. <laughs> so we are seeing a lot. Wow. But to your point, though, I mean, you're absolutely right, is that behind the question here is people are worried about their individual situation. Nobody really cares about the stats all that much. I don't think anyone is going to 
you know, like, oh yeah, you said there's a whole lot more, but hey, I'm worried about my kid. And and parents right. say that, right? Like, what's up with my kid? Do I should I be worried? Some parents have even asked me to be honest. They said, like, I don't know, my kid seems okay. And but the news is telling me that every kid is not okay. So I send them like, no, sometimes maybe your kid can be okay. That's 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 fine. So I'm wondering kind of your perspective, you know, when you're talking to families and I'm sure everybody curb ties you if you go to a barbecue, if you go anywhere and say, Hey Josh, like when should I be worried about the kid? And, you know, every kid has stuff that they go through and, you know, all kinds of natural, normal behaviors and variation. But when would a parent be worried? What would you say kind of from a big perspective? Right. I mean, I think there's a few factors we want to think about. Kind of, well, obviously what you're noticing in the severity level of it, for instance, you know, hey, my child seems kind of sad some days. My child seems a little anxious or my child is, you know, talking to friends or even talking to me and saying that he's having thoughts about, you know, suicide, right? Mm -hmm. So obviously what I try to to help people understand is is people are more familiar generally with medical things, right? Like kids Mm -hmm. being sick. So um, what are the things that you're usually thinking about? Hey, my, my child's having a little bit of a cough and maybe sneezing a little bit right? Yeah, I guess before COVID, we would say, hey, maybe this is just a little bit of, you know, a cold, right? Or maybe a little allergies, right? Um, I think kind of same, I, and, you know, depending on how long it lasts, if it's just like a minor thing, you probably don't think too much about it. If unless it continues more frequently, it's like happening every day, the kid's getting mm-hmm. sick, tired, can't get out of bed, missing school, you know, if it goes on for a lot longer, you start to say, all right, maybe I need to you know, call my pediatrician, you know, see what's going on. That's similar kind of idea that we think of with mental or what I advise people in, in regards to child and adolescent mental health, right? It's like, okay, if we're noticing they're a little down one day, we probably don't overreact, right? Child had a bad day, it can happen. Uh, throw a little bit of a tantrum here or there, it's okay. Struggling a little bit with school, right? It happens. Uh, however, this is something that you're noticing is going on for a while or increasing in the severity. We would probably want you to, hey, talk to a mental health professional be a school counselor. It could be your pediatrician. These are, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to start with a child psychiatrist, uh, but mm. therapist can be fine too. Just getting a little bit of a consultation, checking in. Um, these are all great ways to be a little bit on guard, check in, make sure your child's getting the right mental health supports. I hear you there. So I'm definitely hearing the severity of it, time frame, multiple people kind of noticing it. And, and I love what you said there, just kind of maybe a consultation, because one of the things I think people want to clarify is does everybody that comes to you immediately get placed on 100 medications? Like, is that the usual thing? Just you go to a doctor, so boom, medicine, medicine, medicine. Or if I'm a parent and I'm kind of worried, is it possible that my child who's struggling may not necessarily be on medication? Or if they are, is it possible that it's kind of a, a gradual conservative process? Right. I mean, I can't speak for every child, not a psychiatrist, but if I kind of use American Academy Talent Psychiatry uh, practice parameters and recommendations, we often see is that pretty much the standard to have more than just kind of one session oftentimes, mm-hmm. or to have sessions where you're spending time with the child, time with the parent. And the reason I bring all this up is it's not so much, hey, you're going to walk in, have a 15 minute visit, and we're going to put you on a medication right? Mm-hmm. A lot of it is going to be, we're going to have a, a little bit of an intake process, get to know your child, get to know your family, get to know your values, understand the concerns. Oftentimes at the end of even a two hour session, where I interview the child and the parent, I'm telling them to come back, you know, in a week or so, because I'm going to spend some time collecting additional information, you mm-hmm. know, contacting teachers or sending forms to other family members to fill out. And this whole process is designed to see, is there 
truly a mental health condition, a disorder that needs treatment. Once there, you know, the recommendations follow um, pretty similar guidelines. We, in certain cases, yes, medication may be indicated. But interestingly, with children, adolescents, oftentimes the first-line treatment looks like therapy. Many a times, it's reassurance. We're just telling parents, it's okay. Your child's doing okay. This may be playing a role. Here are some preventative strategies or supportive strategies for your child to take as parents. These are things that you can do. It's really interesting. What I find is that oftentimes parents will bring their child in. The parents will talk. I'll talk with the child too. We'll all have this good conversation. And the child will walk out doing a lot better. No medicine, no therapy, nothing. But just the validation, being hurt, you know, when parents, you know, or a child's kind of understanding, right? Mm. Keep in mind, they have a child's understanding. You can't give them an adult mind. Is I'm weird. Something's wrong with me. I'm the mm. problem, right? Like uh, they may be embarrassed to talk about it. Mm. They may think their parents won't understand, right? Mm. Uh, but all of a sudden, their parents are what? I said one thing about being sad or down and here we are talking to a doctor, you're taking it so seriously, and the doctor is validating to me, you guys are validating to me. Pretty amazing how all of a sudden what became this very personal, scary, unsure thing becomes actually something that we all share and understand and work together and kind of team approach it. Um, so with all that being said, yeah, so yes, no, most kids aren't walking out of here with a prescription in hand. Oftentimes, it's a plan to meet again, talk some more, mm. do therapy, or other first-line treatments that often beat out medication. Mm. Well, that's so true, man. And, and I think it's really powerful that you're saying there, like, just not have that feeling like you're worrying alone anymore. I feel like there's now a team of people who cares about you, a professional and your parents, and there's this sort of, like you're saying, this validation happens and, and that in itself can be therapeutic. But what about though, let's take kind of the opposite perspective for a second. Some parents, maybe when they're told, hey, the school, maybe the teacher is saying, hey, I'm a little concerned about, you know, little Johnny here. Right. Whether that comes from the pediatrician or a teacher or a family friend. And I don't know if this ever happens, but I've seen it with even like parents of adult children or like in their 20s will get a little defensive. They say, oh, like maybe this means I'm a bad parent. Right. This means like I must have messed something up. If my child is struggling with feelings of depression, like why? I gave them all this good stuff. I just bought them a new toy. You know, I had a parent literally tell me that one. Well, I'm a brand new, awesome toy. So that's cool, but it might not be the answer. So, <laughs> How do you kind of navigate that discussion without, if you're seeing the parent getting a little bit defensive or getting a little bit blaming themselves, essentially, how do you kind of walk them through that? Right. I mean, I think it's natural, right? I mean, parent first question or first thing they're going to think about is like, what did I do wrong? Like, how did right. I mess up my kid? What did I, you know, should I have done something different? And oftentimes, you know, just kind of remind parents that children, and they're, they're in their own world sometimes, they're in their own minds, right? A lot of what they're interpreting or seeing from a situation is not, they, their perspective may not actually line up with what you were intending for them to understand or see in the world or the friends or what's going on around them. And I guess bear with me a little bit, just trying to explain this idea of, um, you know, you've, you've heard of that saying before with our kids, like, yeah, now that we're adults and we're our kids, right? We're gonna we're gonna say like we're gonna say, well, you, you hear what I said? You know, we'll, we'll use that comment uh, just to make sure they heard you know, that they were listening. Uh, take mm -hmm. out the trash. Did you, did you hear what I said? Take out the trash, right? I want the kid to repeat it back. But we kind of turn that a little bit or turn a, a, give it a little different of a adjustment to it, just saying, when you ask your kid that, you can actually find out, like, what did you actually hear me say? Mm -hmm. When I said, 
gosh, I asked you to do this. You didn't do it. I need you to do this, mm -hmm. right? You may think what your child is hearing is, look, I get it. You made a mistake. You didn't hear me. You were playing your video games. I'm just mm -hmm. going to repeat it to you because I need you to go and do it. Mm -hmm. Your child may hear maybe a lot different. Mm -hmm. What they may be hearing is something like, I never get it right. Wow. Always having to retell me things over and over again. And you must really, like, I am making your life harder. Mm. Right? That's not what you wanted your kid to hear, but that's just what they heard. So we'll use that. I'll often tell parents that, you know, hey, when you ask that question, ask, like, genuinely be curious. What did they hear mm. you say when you tried to correct them? Right? So I bring that specific example of these ideas up in this kind of idea of like when parents are coming to me saying, what did I do to mess right. up my kid? It's like, no, it's, it's not about that. Oftentimes right. it's just miscommunication and mm. it, it, you're, you're a great parent. You're doing your best. You can't control for everything or every way your child hears what you say mm. or every, every, the way your child hears what their teacher says or what their friends say. So oftentimes it's better to just be curious and be a good listener and not worry about who's to blame, right? Maybe you will learn something. Maybe you'll learn something like, oh my gosh, when I said that, you thought I was upset with you? No, no, I'm so sorry. I never wanted you to feel that way. I was just having a bad day. I was busy at work. I know you guys were all homeschooling and I just couldn't hear the Zoom meeting and I just you know, got upset. Uh, but right. I, not, I didn't want you to feel like you were some burden. I, I'm so right. sorry. I never wanted you to feel that. I love that. There's I really agree it because it's 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 amazing how much information you can find out with that curiosity. That is that is really good advice. And I'll tell you, on sort of the the later end of life situation, when I'm seeing these adults, just a patient last week was telling me how one of the things that she thought her mother was saying to her, or like the way her mother made it made her feel, or it was communicated, has stayed with her decades later. This is now someone in, you know much older in life and. There could have been some, you know, maybe there was if there was fantastic guidance at the time. There was a great crowd psychiatrist who can sort of interpret the miscommunication there. There could have been a different discussion now, you know, what we were having. But to your point here, in terms of your saying, sometimes there are these things that get in the way of communication. And one of the things that you mentioned, if you know the child is not, you're not connecting with them, and sometimes they can isolate into their own little world, maybe seeking that validation, seeing that understanding friends, right? It's the most important humans in their lives. And sometimes those friends come in the video game and the bane of so many parents' existence, right? Of just saying, I wish I could just take the PS4, 5, 6, and Xbox and throw out of the window. <laughs> right? are, are video games the worst thing in the world for kids? Is there good parents to say, you know, no video games forever? Or is there something that parents should also understand about video games and the role in the child's like social world? What does cute kids Right. And that's, again, an area where there's going to be, there's going to be a lot more research. We're going to hopefully mm. understand this a bit better. Um, I think we do get worried if we have a kid who is playing video games all day and not attending to their other needs, their social needs, their educational needs, et cetera, right? Family needs. So I think that, you know, is one group where we would be much more concerned about, but nowadays it, it is a lot more complicated. The video games we're playing mm. now, 
I'll be honest, I haven't played a lot of video games as of late. Growing up, missing out, man. Missing out. Yeah, <laughs> I know it's amazing, right? Like this is so I think that answers your question right there about how I'm completely missing out. And but that's the idea, right? Like these video games have gotten a lot more complicated. I'm sorry, not complicated. It's more social, more interactive. Mm -hmm. They definitely draw your attention in and can do it for hours. But with that being said, um, yeah, especially during this pandemic. I mean, it's mm. kind of been the lifeline for a lot of these kids to still communicate with their friends, to enjoy. Mm. I think uh, we even see kind of rises in kind of, you know, not just boys and growing up, there's a lot of boys playing video games, but now it's like their girls are participating, everybody's participating now. It seems to be a great way to socialize. So what I worry now about is when we start to write, try to restrict it um, mm. without giving good reason and value, mm. right? To why we're restricted. I think there's a lot of... Uh, I guess, lack of understanding, lack of awareness from parents about what these video games are and what they're doing with them, like how they're communicating, how mm. they may be improving uh, some social aspects for these kids, especially during this pandemic. I worry that they're missing the point of, let's say, the American Academy of Pediatrics saying, hey, let's, you know, not, let's limit screen time to two hours a day. I say, oh, it must be like bad for their eyes or something. It's like, well, no, we just need them to exercise. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we can't have them sitting around and not exercising, right? <laughs> so what I would say um, when it comes to these kind of video games, I don't think there's anything particularly inherently wrong in the video games. In fact, there may be a lot of value to it. And I think it's important that parents explore that with their kids, right? Like, hey, what are you playing? Like, yeah. why? What, you played for eight hours today. It's like, well, what are you doing for eight hours? Mm. Can I, let me learn about it. Right. Let me understand what's going on in your video games that keeps you there for eight hours. Um, mm -hmm. I think a lot of our assumptions ends up being, oh, man, I could never play Madden 95 for eight hours. <laughs> you know, like something must be wrong with my kid, you know. Um, but you know, nowadays, like you can because you're actually interacting and the games are compl mm -hmm. complicated, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I think that's you know what I would tell you to inform parents or when I talk to my parents here about it, it's like, well, first find out what video games your kids are playing. Mm -hmm who they're playing with, how they're playing. And in, if you're really worried about the amount of time that they're playing on the games, you know, what is your concern? Uh, and make that known to your child, right? And, and maybe even make it known to your pediatrician or consult with a psychiatrist or mental health professional about what that concern is. Like for instance, mm. I'm worried that they're going to, they're, they're going to go blind. Well, it's like, I, that's probably not a good, uh, like that enough of a, or we don't have enough worry about that ourselves like we're not worried that watching the screen for eight hours and make you go blind but if you're worried that they're not active and they're gaining a lot of weight and that's not good for their health or they're not physically getting out and meeting other people and you think that's not going to be good for them socially instead of telling them not to play video games we would recommend promoting the thing you want them to do hmm. right so not saying hey don't play eight hours of video games fine what do you want them to do during hmm. the other time right Play two right. hours of video games, but I want you to use the other time to do these things because it's good for your health. Mm. Right? You're not going to get an argument from a child if you're saying, hey, I mean, you may get a little bit of fussiness, but it's harder to argue a point right. of, hey, I don't want you to play video games for eight hours a day because I want at least one hour of time spent with family. That's important. Right. Or right. we need to have an hour of time exercising. Right. I love that. I think that's harder for a kid to be like, I don't need exercise. It's like, right. Right. right? Uh, no, so I, you can do that. It works better. I like that a lot. And I think, especially, I'm hearing kind of an undertone of humility that you want the parents to kind of have, that even the possibility that we may, you know, parents may not have it all figured out. And they have to sort of approach the child and learn about a different world. You know, it's surprising sometimes to parents that 
kids know a lot more about technology than the parents do. And there are a lot of things you may not really get. And the more you can sort of understand your kids world, the more you can engage them in it. And then more of that communication can be better. Of course, the caveat to all this is if your kid is a bad at video games, if they just keep getting beaten in the 2k, they should stop playing. Okay. I think that's just, that's the recommendation from all psychiatrists. You, know, you gotta be good to play. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I say that's my patience sometimes. I'm like, if you want to play one, one game of 2k, but if I win, no more video games for you. That's just how it's done. <laughs> That's a good point. I mean, I think, uh, you know, as far as parents are concerned, it's, it's, it, is, it goes back to that curiosity, really understanding mm -hmm. what these kids are doing, what they're getting from it, because it, going back to the idea of what they hear, right, right, the perception they get from what you're saying, right? Mm -hmm. If I say to my kid, hey, you got to stop the video games, no more video games for you, right? Mm -hmm. What your kid may be hearing is, so you just want me to be bored all day, right? right. right? Like, you don't want me to talk to my friends anymore, right? Right. Like it could be that like what you you just told them not to play video games, but right. what they're actually hearing and what in many cases you're making happen is like, yeah, mm -hmm. now they're bored and they can't talk to their friends who are all hanging out playing video games together. Right. It's a remarkable disconnect, what can be said and what can be heard. I mean, that's true for kids and parents, that's true for I'm sure you you counsel relationships as well, you know, and folks who are really in all kinds, whether it's professional relationships, romantic relationships. What you say and what is understood and what is felt behind what you say is not always the same thing. It's surprising. And I think one and other example. The point yeah. too there is like, it's not about like blaming people too. I want to be right. clear here. It's just that we got to be curious, right? Like, I mean, it's not like, oh, are you 51% to blame or 49% to blame or, you know, like, is it, you know, like, you're, you're things that can happen. And it's just miscommunications happen. It's not about blame. Right. Uh, sometimes you add an extra, I don't know, texting your friend, you add an extra end of the word diner, right? And it says up this dinner and there's just a miscommunication, right? It may or may not be an inside story that has, has to be validity. It's just yeah. yeah. Of course, in that situation, you were wrong. Anyways, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like you said, though, communicate because there's so much to grow in communication over the years, right? Like we've known each other for decades, right? So there were times that we've communicated then and we've maybe got a little bit better at it now and it can be fine-tuned you know if, if it's not like like to your point it's not a blaming issue but it's it's a growth parents and and spouses can become kind of more quick and i think the other element of this communication bit too as you were saying kind of as you're learning the support network of a new family you know their immediate family perhaps friends one umbrella of that support network too is sometimes a faith community right and and they can turn to you know your local church for, for support. And sometimes the feedback I've gotten from, from families is, hey, like I went to my church for support. I wish they were able to kind of understand a bit. And I wasn't sure if they really got it. Versus sometimes, like I spoke with somebody actually an hour ago before we spoke, who said, Oh my goodness, I've never felt more supported in a church. You know, my priest was had a great mental health background. So they walked me through things from A to Z. And I felt like it was like a true hospital extension, you know. And there's been sort of everything in between. So in your experience and kind of from your perspective, what would you want the faith community to know or sort of consider when we're dealing with families who are perhaps struggling with this whole mental health world? One, the faith community has a huge, I guess, a responsibility, a position of privilege to work with these families, with these uh, children, but uh, with adults, sure, helping them around their spirituality. And in you know, studies will show the value of spirituality in supporting our patients um, and supporting their mental health care, their physical health care, everything, right? 
So I think when I was talking to the faith community, it's like one, you know, thank you, and you play a big role. And, you know, I think this is integral part for a lot of patients' physical and mental health well-being, right? And so with that comes a lot of responsibility, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, what I would say is that you don't have to go it alone in the faith community. Mm-hmm. You don't have to feel disconnected from the medical or the mental mm-hmm. health community, that we all can be part of a community working to support a family. We're not or very rarely, I should say, in conflict with one another. If you're working and helping somebody around their faith, it's often helping support their mental health. And if I'm mm-hmm. working with them, even if it's prescribing medicine, oftentimes that is supportive in mm-hmm. treating their depression, anxiety, ADHD, whatever mm-hmm. it is, that then further supports their spiritual journey, their, their faith. So there's, I think sometimes we and you know, I'm in Texas, so it's maybe a little bit different, but we do sometimes feel that there's a, we're challenging each other somehow, that mm. you're either picking, you know, a psychiatrist or mental health care, or you're picking, you know, a spiritual way of getting better. And that that, that doesn't exist in, 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 in my opinion, at least in, in mental health care. There's just no way uh, that we could separate those and, and, and hope for success for a lot of our right. patients. So yeah, it's, uh, I guess that would be the, the thing I would want uh, these communities to know is that totally partner. It would make a lot of sense. Nothing that we do will, will necessarily would have to contradict each other. Right. No, that's, that's very wise. And it, uh, it goes in line with, you know, the American Psychiatric Association had this formalized partnership where they put out wonderful resources together to really speak to your point. The fact that we're on the same team here, you know, we've got different roles, right? We're not going to be necessarily the ones who take all of the spiritual care and not every priest will prescribe medication, right? But every team member has a valuable role. And the more we can kind of work together, the better it is for the patient. And you can kind of see it from the patient's perspective is like, wow, wouldn't it be nice if everybody in my team was, you know, cohesive, they all kind of saw that, they're not at odds at all. And of course, like we can be fair, that there are some historical reasons why psychiatry might have been a little wary, faith community might have been a little wary. But the reality of like just like you're saying is that today there's no real source of conflict. And the studies, the, the data really confirms the fact that the better we work together, both on an individual and a family and a community level, because it does take a village to be able to approach on these mental health concerns. And speaking of that, I know it takes a village and I know. Dr. Thomas, you've got uh, many more ideas to share with us, and I've taken so much of your time today, and you could be seeing tons of families in, in this meantime. So I, I just want to take a second to just appreciate you. Thank you for the work that you're doing. I know as close friend of yours for all these for all these years, I am very fortunate and grateful that there is someone like you in this field. That when someone a child is struggling and and their family is struggling, that they can go to like a brilliant, kind, compassionate doctor. And I'm uh, I'm happy to get to have call you a friend, man. So thank you for taking the time to chat with me. Yeah, I'm honored. Thank you so much for having me. It helps out somebody out there, some of your listeners. And of course, you know, just wanted to talk back. Proud of you, I am, uh, like because you've done such amazing work and uh, really love these videos. I've been watching them. They're always entertaining, enjoyable. I hope this one lives up to the mean Amir home standard. It'll be the best one. This is gonna is be it? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I'm honored. But again, yeah. Congratulations. Uh, keep up the amazing work. I love showing my videos to, uh, sorry, your videos off to patients and others too. So uh, it's, it's always fun to, to share your videos on uh, Facebook and whatnot. So, Thank you um, so much. 
Well, thanks again. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for checking out this episode. Please take a second to rate and review as this helps us reach more people. And until then, please don't forget to mind your health. See you soon.